Hi, this is Olivia Cook. And I'm Amber Duffney. And this is The Empowered Woman. Badass and unfiltered. My co-host Amber and I created this podcast to highlight the badass women we know and love. We did this with the goal of empowering women and supporting each other on the journey of life and business. We show women that they can still be a badass, make a difference in the world, leave a legacy, all while rocking their femininity. Olivia is a mindset coach and social media strategist who helps women organize, strategize, and automate their lives and businesses to grow and scale with ease. And Amber is a life transition coach, an expert whose mission is to help women realign with their purpose and pursue a life of passion and fulfillment. In this podcast, you'll hear amazing stories of inspiration and triumph from kick-ass women from all over the world. As Amber and I are both coaches, we also, from time to time, offer live coaching demos on the show, where you get to be a fly on the wall and see how powerful coaching really is. Now let's dive in. Hello, and welcome back to the Empowered Woman Badass and Unfiltered Podcast. My guest today is a mother of eight, a wife, an elementary school teacher of 25 years, a full-time PhD student in forensic psychology. And today she's going to be sharing her story of surviving domestic violence and giving tips and resources to those in need. As always, the links to contact her are in the show notes below. It is an honor to have you with me, Marsha Roberts. Thank you. It's an honor to be here talking to you. Yes, I'm, I'm so happy. So please go ahead and just start sharing about like your first marriage and like your story and everything like that. Okay, sounds good. In 2009, I took my five children and we fled from my husband of 17 years due to domestic violence and abuse. Um, we had absolutely nothing. I think I had one paycheck in my pocket from my very new job as a retail manager. It was a job that I got to tunnel away out for us. I knew I needed a job to, you know, pay for what the kids and I would need to get away. And so we, we hopped in this pickup truck that we had, this old beat up truck. And we went to Michigan, which was several states away from where I was living. And we stayed with my parents for a couple of weeks. And in that two weeks, we had to figure out the best strategy. Now, in this day and age, if you take your children and you go to another state, when you separate from a spouse, especially one that's abusive, there's a good chance that your children will be awarded to your abuser. So I had to think very carefully. I, I wanted to stay with my family in Michigan more than ever. I didn't have family and friends in New Hampshire where we fled from. They were all my ex-husband's family and friends. So I had nobody. It was just the kids and I, but I had to come back so that I wouldn't be charged with kidnapping my own children. And so we came back and we started a three-year legal battle in the courts um, in which I had to prove that I was abused and I had to protect my five children from their abusive father. Um, after going through all of the legal struggles and the psychological struggles that came from that, uh, my children and I became very involved with volunteering with women and children and 
organizations that helped other abuse victims. And as I started to research ways to help my own family and help other people, I realized that I might as well just get a degree in forensic psychology, which is the area right now um, in the field of psychology that addresses domestic violence and abuse. So I worked two jobs, probably 50 or 60 hours a week, taking care of my five children. And I also earned my master's degree um, working nights and weekends online through Argosy University. Um, they were home-based in Chicago, Illinois, but they had an online program. And then from there, I began to write books. I have two books that are published about our journey. And I also uh, opened a consultancy. Um, during the three years, I did meet somebody and he's a wonderful man who has a huge heart for abuse victims as well. And he really kind of took my children and I under his wing and eventually it grew into a romance so that when my divorce was finalized, he asked me to marry him and we were married a year later. So we've now been married for eight years and we have eight children all together because he has two children and then we adopted a daughter after we got married. That so, is beautiful. A little bit. <laughs> like the, 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 what has become um, of your life versus, you know, where you were, um, what, nine years ago, battling with the going yeah. through the course and battling, getting the custody of your children. And um, yeah, that it's, it's very, and I don't know how in the world you're able to still like go to school work a, work a job, have a consultancy and eight children. Like how, just, how are you doing that? It's crazy. I have a lot of people that support what I do as well. Some of my children who are older now, um, as they got older, they became sort of key players in helping me with lots of different things, you know, from sort of helping with the younger children to, you know, I have one daughter who loves children herself, my adopted daughter, we adopted her at age 15. So, you know, within three years of adopting her, she was an adult and she wanted to be more involved. She had been a domestic violence victim herself. She wanted to be more involved with what we do. She does a lot of babysitting for the victims that we work with because childcare is a really difficult thing. It's so you know, expensive. Not, it really is. You know, I, I remember when we first left, I was working as a substitute teacher. That was the first job I could get. Um, having been home with my children for 12 years, my teaching certification had lapsed. So I had to renew that. And during the process, I did a lot of substitute teaching. So when I was in the classroom, I had to find childcare for my youngest because he was not school age yet. Everybody else was school aged. And I paid $35 a day, which was a very discounted rate, but I only made $65 a day as a substitute. So I literally worked all day for $30 a day. You know, it was really hard, really hard to pay the bills, pay the rent. We had no child support for the first three years. So again, we were not getting any help from their father financial. My parents were elderly, so they helped when they could, but they really struggled. And eventually, you know, I did have a roommate and that helped to offset costs, but it was still really expensive. You can imagine. It was really difficult. Yeah, with five children, <laughs> like like feeding and everything. Like I just 
I understand what it's like to live on a budget, <laughs> but I didn't have like all of those siblings, you know what I'm saying? And yeah. so those, th- those three years must've been really, really tough for you. They were, they were. And we did rely on some things, you know, some helps that we qualified for automatically because of the income I was making. I worked nights and weekends as a retail manager um, for Jockey International. And then um, I actually, you know, did the substitute teaching during the day whenever they called me because they don't call you every day. They just call you when somebody's out sick or at an appointment or whatever. And so, you know, we did qualify for like free breakfast and lunch through public school. That was a wonderful program. And then later, I have to say, um, Michelle Obama introduced a program that provided free fruits and vegetables to children. That was such a godsend to, to the kids. And yeah. for me, because we, we were working in the public schools, so we were allowed to eat these foods. And that was such a huge help, you know? So I, I really appreciate, I feel like, God provided in so many ways through lots of different situations for my family, but for sure, I worked very hard too, you know? Oh, absolutely. So a lot of work. Someone that let's say that is in a similar position and they're thinking about leaving their significant other because of the abuse, what are some of the first steps they should take? It's something that has to be carefully thought about. Um, It would be nice for me to just tell you, you know, just pack your kids up and go to a shelter. But in the United States right now, in part because of COVID-19, and we've seen an increase in domestic violence, but just in general, because we have a lot of homeless people in the United States right now, the shelters are full. And even the shelters for domestic violence victims are very full. Sometimes they have a waiting list. So, If you're planning to leave, you need to really plan and strategize. You need to contact friends and family who maybe would be willing to let you stay for a short time. You need to be clear with them that by leaving, you may involve them in a situation where there could be somebody very angry and violent coming after you. And that's really hard because a lot of people, when they hear that, they don't want to get involved. But, you know, I really encourage people to contact friends and family to talk to them about what's going on in the home, to say, hey, these are my needs. Is there any way that you can help? Even local churches sometimes are willing to help women in these situations. But we do definitely need more programs to help with the housing end of it. That's probably like the biggest issue that I find for women. And it's probably the number one reason that they stay with their abuser. They don't wanna be on the streets homeless with their children, but they don't have a place to go. So I think. In order to empower women to leave, we need to provide for their basic needs when they get out of the situation. Very often, the victims I work with don't have full-time jobs. Some of them haven't even finished their education, whether that be high school or college. They don't have a career. Um, One woman, God bless her, that I worked with, she didn't even have her driver's license or her GED. So it's very hard to be a woman out there and support children and fight an abuser who is very likely to drag you into the legal system for custody when, you know, you don't have the basic things you need to survive. You don't have a job. You don't have a car. You don't have an education. You don't have contacts. Women who are abused are often very isolated. 
so that they don't know a lot of people in the community. They don't have a lot of friends. They don't, they've lost contact with their families. A lot of times families of victims will say, you know, he's not the right person for you because they can see that he is abusive or that he may become abusive. And so families will often just stop talking, you know, to that woman. So that just isolates her further and she has no one to help her when she decides to get out. So in order to get out, you need to plan. You need to find uh, people who will help you. You need to find community programs that can help you. Most town offices uh, or city offices, city town hall, city hall, most of them have welfare programs that will loan a woman enough money for a deposit on an apartment. And that's really good to know because you're gonna need that. Um, you need to have a job. So one of the first things that I did when I knew we had to leave was I got a part-time job. And that really made my abuser angry. And he tried many times to do things to get me fired, but you're gonna need that job to provide for your kids and your family. So you have to find something you can do, you know, to provide. And when it comes to things like food, uh, I had to sort of learn the hard way. We went to bed hungry a few times, I'm not gonna lie. But there are programs out there. You can get food stamps. You can go to Health and Human Services. They have emergency cash that you can become eligible for in those situations. It does take about 30 days to get these things. So again, the planning, you have to plan. You have to say, okay, I'm gonna leave at this time. So I wanna start setting up these programs. Most of them you can set up online now, which is really great. You yeah. know, you can upload your documents online. You take pictures with your phone of those documents. Um, and to be frank, a lot of those documents you're gonna need when you do leave. So it's a really great idea if you have a smartphone and you're planning on leaving to go through documents like your taxes, your children's social security numbers, like their cards, your card, your driver's license. I've known abusers who've actually kept things like that under lock and key so that the woman wouldn't have access to that information. And in order to get social services, you need, you need that information. You know, you need children's birth certificates. So, you know, you really, and when I left, I didn't know any of this. So I really struggled. I had to go back to town halls and I had to try to get birth certificates, copies of them. I had to get, um, oh, one thing my abuser kept was my passport. Luckily, I didn't really need to go anywhere outside of the country, but it's kind of a funny story. Um, he had it in a safe. And one day my oldest son was visiting him and he saw my passport and he thought, you know what? This is mom's and she should have this. So he brought it to me and I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to say. I thought, my gosh, do I reprimand him for taking something out of his father's safe? Or do I tell him thank you for recognizing that this was mine and, and I should have had it, not his father. So just, you know, there's a lot of preparation and for anybody who's considering leaving, you know, please contact me on my consultancy page. I know I've shared my link with you, um, Olivia. And yeah, and that's in the show notes below. I can help, you know, anybody who's thinking about leaving to, to sort of come up with a safety plan that will, will help them get away and think about the resources they need. 
I tell women a lot of times, everybody has things that are assets. Some women own the home they're living in. If that's the case, then we want to make sure that, you know, if their name is on the lease or their name is on the mortgage for whatever reason, we want to make sure they have um, restraining orders in place so that the abuser has to leave so that they don't have to go find a new home. Some women don't have that, but maybe they have a good job, you know, so that's an asset. Some women may not have those things, but they have great family support. So they have people, family or friends they can go to and they can stay there until they can, you know, sort of get on their feet. So like everybody has something that's an asset that they can use to their advantage to prepare to leave. But you just have to really think about it. Um, I think it's very easy to try to leave and run away when something happens. And I definitely don't advise women to stay in a situation that's, you know, very dangerous. Like if you had an abuser that's had a weapon, had a gun or something like that, of course you'd want to just get away and you'd want to call the police. But most abuse escalates very slowly. Yeah. And I wanted to get into that. I wanted to know what some of those signs are for people to watch out on. Yes. So we try, we try, I always tell people domestic violence is like a runaway train. So the end point is always the train crash. It's always the crash when something really awful happens. That's the end point. What we want to do is help women to get off that train before it becomes a runaway train. And so there are lots of signs and symptoms that you can look for and you can see abuse escalating slowly over time. And you really want to get out of the situation before it gets that dangerous. So I definitely that's worth, you know, talking about. Um, Most abuse starts with something really minor that is a controlling feature. So I can give you some examples from my own relationship. That's probably the easiest. Um, When I first met my ex-husband, we were in college and it was a really beautiful, lovely romance. Like think Romeo and Juliet, Titanic, like he was just so handsome and he was so sweet, like such a gentleman. And, you know, we had a lot in common and we had a lot of fun together and he's a really good kisser. And like, you know, there were just a million reasons to like this guy. Mm -hmm. And he was very charismatic. Most abusers are very charismatic. And then some weird things started happening. We were probably a few months into our relationship. And he told me that the clothes that I was wearing, that my outfits were too revealing and that he was from a really conservative Christian family. And so he asked me if I would give away all of my clothes and I would buy things that he thought were you know, more appropriate for me to wear. So I thought it was a weird request, but I thought, well, this is something small I can do for the man I love. I mean, he's looking at me, right? I'm, I, you know, and so I did it. And my mom was shocked. I mean, she helped me pick out some of those things before I went to college and she thought they were really cute on me, cute outfits. And, you know, I lived outside of New York City, so had a pretty good fashion sense, was really into whatever was trendy. And I just gave all of it away. And I started over with the things he wanted me to wear. And, you know, I mean, it, was, it wasn't like he wanted me to wear awful things. I mean, he just jeans and t-shirts and just stuff that wasn't shirts that weren't low cut and, 
you know, dresses that weren't too short and things like that. So that was one weird red flag right there, right up front. He didn't really accept me for who I was. And I was willing to change who I was to keep him happy. That was a red flag. The second thing that happened, and most people kind of gasp in horror when I share this, but I think it's worth saying, is he pulled me aside one day and he said, so I have to talk to you about something that's really bothering me, that it's something that you do. And, you know, I wasn't even thinking like, oh boy, because this is right at the beginning of the relationship. And this is only like the second weird thing. So, you know, I, I really wasn't like hypervigilant or alert. And I was young. I was 18. I married him at 19. So, you know, I didn't have a lot of serious boyfriends. I mean, I had dated people, but nothing serious. And he said, this is what he said to me. He said, um, I need you to lower your eyes when you speak to my friends who are male. When you look them in the eyes, it's too flirtatious and you're giving them the wrong idea. And so they think you're interested in them. So, you know, you can smile and be friendly, but please don't look them in the eyes. Please lower your eyes when you're speaking to my friends who are male. And I mean, this is not something that I'd ever encountered with any boyfriend ever. And I thought it was weird. My dad was a pastor for 44 years and a World War II vet. And he was a very conservative man. And he always taught me to look people in the eye when I was shaking their hand or when I was talking with them. And so I thought it was really weird, but again, I did it. And so throughout my marriage to him, the demands just got crazier and crazier and crazier. And over time, I began to get so conditioned mm-hmm. that I didn't even recognize how ridiculous and how way off base some of his requests were. And they'll use spirituality and cr- they will use Christianity as, and, and do their own interpretations. Like, you know, the wife is supposed to be submissive. So they will mm-hmm. use that as their crutch. And um, I, I mean, I was in an abusive relationship when I was 20. So mm-hmm. like 19 and 20, so around the same age. And um, yeah, it, it did start out with the controlling, like I would be myself and I'm outspoken and I would talk to people and I couldn't talk to people. Anytime I was not at work, he was calling my phone. If I did not answer calling my phone and then he had lost his job. I was paying all of the bills. I was, yeah. his brother and sister came and lived with us for a month. He would leave the kids at home by themselves. So I'd come home after I was in school full-time working two jobs and just the amount of stress. That's part of the reason I don't have children now um, in all honesty. Um, Yeah. Because it's just, I know how much it takes to raise children and the type of household that would be ideal for them to have. And I know that we can't like, nobody's perfect, but we do have the opportunity to, I just, I found out early enough that I, I'm very happy that I didn't have children with him, but it escalated so quickly. I only dated him for a year, but we lived together. And I mean, he like, yeah, he would punch me and like punch holes in the wall. And like, I had braces and he like 
hit my face so hard one day. And I, I was surprised that I, my lips weren't cut from like it. So I, I do yeah. understand um, some of it, you know, but yeah, it definitely, the controlling, I feel like that's one of the things that it just automatically starts. And once they break you down, almost, it's like, you know, so how do you build yourself back up after you've been broken down? I mean, it's really hard. I think a lot of it is about empowerment. So a lot of the women that I work with now, um, early on when I started researching and reading, one of the things I came across was how important it is as workers with domestic violence victims that you don't just become the next person that they depend on. You need to teach them to depend on themselves. You need to teach them to do for themselves. And, you know, almost immediately when I start working with a new client, you know, I feel that clinginess where they want to just grab onto me and they want me to just pick this up and take care of it for them. And so in the beginning, I allow that. I allow it because I recognize they need it. They have felt so alone for so long. I want them to know that I'm always going to be here for them. And then over time, I began to kind of wean them off of that to this place where they're thinking things through and doing things for themselves. They're taking care of their own business with the court. They're taking care of their own children. They're taking care of their own responsibilities in their home or with their job or whatever that particular person struggled with. Everybody's different, as I said. Some people have one area, you know, they're just fantastic at it. I have one gal who now kind of gives back and she helps with victims. She went to school for accounting and then she became involved in this very abusive relationship. And of course she stopped doing her work. She stayed home to take care of twin boys that she had with her abusive partner. And you know what? When we got to that place where she was independent, she got so good at helping women self-represent in court that she is now one of the people I call when I have a woman who needs to fill out a restraining order, when I have a woman that needs to sit down and write a timeline so she can represent in court and explain to a judge what has happened, or when I have a woman that needs to give a statement to the police department, she's the gal I call because that's the area that she's really talented at. She really knows how to write things up and how to sort of get that paperwork done. And for some women, that is a huge deterrent. They say, oh, you know, I don't know how to file a parenting plan and I don't have money for a lawyer. And there's a long waiting list for a pro bono lawyer, you know, in my state. How do I do this? Well, I mean, I definitely help a lot of these women, but I also connect them with, you know, that young lady who happens to be really good at that. So I think one of the biggest things is just that empowerment. It's finding that area where that woman is like really, really good at something, some aspect. And every woman has something mm-hmm. that they're amazing at. So you find that talent in that woman and you build her up. And I was very blessed because my current husband was the person that built me up the most. But my children also very, very supportive. So it was my supportive, you know, inner circle sort of my children and my, well, first boyfriend and then husband, you know, these people were the ones that did that for me. So I really try to pay it forward now and do that for other women. 
So I think that's really key. You know, it's, it's wonderful. We do a really good job in the United States at saying to a woman, oh, that's terrible. He punched you in the face. Let, you know, why don't you come to the shelter? But then they get to the shelter and they stay there and they stay there. And then they can't stay there anymore because somebody else has to come in and then they go back to their abuser because they haven't been empowered because they don't have that job they need. They haven't found a place to live. They're still struggling with their mental health issues. Most women come out of a, an abusive relationship with post-traumatic stress disorder. Many of them have adjustment disorder, depression, anxiety, some begin to be involved in substance abuse or drinking. I always tell women, that's the worst thing you can do for yourself or your children. You need to try to stay away from alcohol and drugs because it's just going to complicate things. It's not going to help you take care of your children. It's not gonna help you heal. And that's a huge battle. That's a, that's a really huge struggle. A lot of women get very involved with those things and it really is, is detrimental, you know? So yeah, just really building the woman up and it's so individual, you know, for each person, but finding that area of strength and then helping them to grow that and use that to their advantage, that's really important. I think really that that's something that is not talked about enough. Granted, you work in this industry, but see me as a person, that doesn't, um, and I, my aunt actually was murdered by her ex-husband um, three days after her restraining order expired. Yeah. Um, and yeah, he shot her, he shot my cousin and my aunt was a foster parent. And, um, you know, she was, she was always a strong woman or whatever, but he came to her house. Like, like, you know, there, and there's so many situations like that. And I know that, but I'm not, as connected to that industry as you are. And I really don't feel like we talk about empowering people and because it's a lot of people think social programs are just to give things, but we actually do need to build people up. We need to give them a hand up. We need to actually teach them how to fish and not just give them fish. And, um, I think it's great that you do that. Like I, yeah. And and just touching on the danger element, you know, talking about your aunt's situation, Again, that's a situation of we want to empower and teach women to leave before it becomes a runaway train because the end of the runaway train is a crash or a murder or a rape or your child gets molested. Really awful, dark things happen to, happen to women who stay on that train with their children. So we need, to, we need to teach them to get off at an earlier stop. So a lot of this is about learning the signs of somebody who's abusive. First of all, the crazy controlling stuff. I mean, that is how it starts. And then maybe it will become verbal abuse or psychological abuse. So, you know, there's lots of clever ways that these abusers um, make a woman feel small. Um, I'll give you an example. My relationship with my ex-husband I never would have been encouraged to go back to school for psychology. I never would have been encouraged to write and publish books. I never would have been encouraged to get my PhD because in his mind, I don't think I was smart enough. 
my new husband as my boyfriend recognized my talents immediately. And he encouraged and encouraged and encouraged me to write, to publish, to go back to school. Many, many nights that man did dinner and bedtime so that I could sit behind a computer, you know, and work on these things. So the psychological abuse, you know, a lot of it really is about keeping that woman in her place and making her feel small, not allowing her to really blossom and be everything she can be. So that's a warning sign. If your partner's not making you, helping you become a better person and helping you to grow, there could be something wrong there. That may not be a good person for you. That may not be a healthy relationship for you. It's really important, I think, just to really think about, you know, how healthy a relationship is right from the get-go, right from the beginning. You know, I don't regret having my beautiful children with my ex-husband at all. And for sure, having them and raising them was a wonderful, like huge blessing in my life. But when I think about all the different things I went through, if I had just been more cognizant of those warning signs early on with his controlling behavior, you know, um, I'm not sure things would have gone the way they did, you know? So again, I feel really strongly like in your aunt's situation, you have to know that for like a year and a half, two years. And so it escalated really fast. Yes. And I feel like a lot of, a lot of situations do like that I've experienced escalate very, very fast. Like this was her second husband. She, she randomly married him. And then literally like it was the next year, like she actually wasn't with him for more than he, cause he got out of jail. I don't know why she chose him, but he got out of jail. He had like, they were married like five or six months. They got the restraining order. And then the year later, he killed her. Yeah. And he only got seven years in prison. Yeah. It's unbelievable. The charges, uh, you know, for rape too, like it's ridiculous, you know, maybe three years. If, if we're lucky, we get three years for a husband that rapes his wife. Um, in some states, it's actually still viewed as consenting just because you're married. Mm-hmm. And so I had a case here in New Hampshire where um, I actually had this, this, this woman's friend was really clever. I never would have thought of this. This is one of the first cases that my husband and I worked together with victims. And this friend had taken her to the hospital right away and they did a forensic rape kit. And by doing that, they collected forensic evidence to prove that the husband had raped her. And of course, there were other physical tells as well that, you know, it had been against her will. And so the prosecutor went ahead and, you know, filed the charges with her. Well, then down the road, of course, she she got scared and she wanted to withdraw the charges. And the prosecutor said, no, we're not withdrawing the charges. So this man actually did go to jail for raping his wife, which is as it should be. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't see that very often. No, we don't. We've got to teach women that if you are assaulted sexually, it is not your fault. You have nothing to be ashamed of. And you need to go right to an emergency room and have a rape kit done. You know, mm-hmm. and it's it's not an easy thing, but it is the only way that you have evidence later to make sure that the person who did that to you 
will be brought to justice. Many of us, you know, I was raped several times and I'll never have justice because there was no proof. Yeah. No evidence. You know, so that's, that's kind of a pet peeve of mine. I think it's really important that we change the way we think of that. It's not the woman's shame. It's the man's shame that he did that. It's not her fault. She didn't choose for that to happen. And so, you know, absolutely, we need to get in this sort of, I don't know, I guess, mindset or habit that if you are sexually assaulted, you need to go right to an emergency room so that that evidence can be collected via a rape kit and you can receive whatever else you need, you know, testing for STDs, maybe maybe like the morning after pill to ensure there's no pregnancy, whatever it is you need, counseling services, maybe you need to go live at a shelter, you know, because you can't go back there. Maybe, you know, that that's where you live. That was your partner or your husband. So I think, you know, that's really important that we, um, we talk about these early escalation things. Yeah. And that, that, that is the place where you go for help. You don't wait, don't wait. It's not going to get better. He's not going to change. Mm -hmm. Once you start down that train track, down that path, it's going to escalate and it's not, it's not going to get better. Like no matter what you do, you know? So, um, I know I put this in with links for you too. There is a book out there that I think every single woman should read. I think every attorney should read it. I think every judge should read it. Every prosecutor, every social worker, every every psychology professional. I know that seems extreme, but anybody who may have contact with a domestic violence victim should read this book. It was um, published in 2002 by um, a gentleman named Lundy Bancroft, and he actually co-founded an abuser's um, intervention program here in the United States called Emerge. And so Lundy Bancroft, this gentleman, worked with thousands of batterers and their partners over 15 years in this program. And he wrote this book called, Why Does He Do That? Inside the Minds of Angry and Controlling Men. You can buy it on Amazon. It's like 10 or $13 a copy. Cannot recommend it enough. If you're in a relationship and you have doubts or questions, that is the book to read. It's a hard read if you've already been in an abusive relationship for a while because it's very specific and you're going to read it and it'll, it'll just like really cut you to the core because you'll go, oh my gosh, you know, he did that to me. How could I not see that? Mm-hmm. But it's eye-opening. And I, I just really think that If we want people to understand the dynamic of domestic violence better, that's the book. That's the one to read. My book that I wrote is sort of our story, actually both books. The first is sort of our story of leaving and fleeing and surviving. And the second story is really like the second book is really our story of healing. And the books are currently not on the shelf, but if you are interested in reading it, you can just message me your email address. Um, and again, you can go to the consultancy site and I can email you just a PDF of the book or of both books so that, you know, you can read them, you know, just sort of like our personal story of how we got where we are. But as far as dynamics, Lundy Bancroft's book, it's just absolutely invaluable. You know, it really is kind of like my textbook. I go back to it all the time. 
I recommend it all the time. Um, I'm even using it in my dissertation because guess what? It was written in 2002 and all of the current research we have now aligns perfectly with this book. So the journal articles by the PhDs, the studies being done now with victims and their families, with police officers who work with victims, all of those you know, professionals who work with victims, um, the research all aligns with Lundy Bancroft's book. So it's still current, even though you know it's 18 years old. Yeah, that's awesome. And will you share, I know why you've taken your book off the shelves. Will you share that just so people understand why? Yeah, I will. Um, when I originally wrote the book, it was a safeguard. I happened to leave a really dangerous perpetrator. We have levels of dangerousness in forensic psychology when we look at perpetrators. Men who commit sexual violence are much more dangerous than men who do not. And that's because they've gotten to a place where they objectify their victims. And you're really just kind of one rung below serial killer when you get to a place where you don't see you know, your victim is a human being. And so it's very dangerous. So because my perpetrator was really dangerous, I decided to write a book. One thought I had was, if anything happens to me or my children, this book is sort of a testament and the police will know where to look. That, you know, this will point right back to the person most likely to do it. And I thought that was really important because again, my perpetrator was really clever you know, he's a very intelligent man. I told you earlier that he's handsome and charismatic. Yeah, he also has an extremely high IQ. He's a very, very intelligent person. So the book was on the shelf. It got published by a friend of mine, Pat White. She owned a company, Arrow Publications, and she eventually retired and she gave me back the rights to my books. But while it was on the shelf, it did provide protection, but it also provided a lot of controversy in my life. Um, when I wanted to work with police departments, they would look at my book and they would say, well, you wrote a tell-all. How do we know you won't write a, write a tell-all about our department or our work or things like this? And, you know, I worked for a school district and signed confidentiality waivers and had no problem keeping confidential information confidential. But because my book was so honest, I think it kind of scared people, kind of intimidated people. Because people don't want the truth. Like, and, and that's, that's what I, I mean, and we see it in our society with the media. Like they don't even, they just tell us stories anyway. So, but we like, 100%. and when they see the truth, it's like, and, and I know, I, I just, from the little pieces that you shared, I know that your story was probably, I mean, 17 years. Like, that's a lot. And I mean, yeah, no, when you commented something about um, overcoming trauma now, 17 years, that's a different story. Like it's different, different things are different. And it's like, I, I could not imagine the amount of healing you've gone through as it is and, and are still going through. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. No. Um, Skyping like we're doing right now, like a zoom meeting is one of the most difficult things for me. It's still a trigger. I was talking to a client this morning and I told her I was going to do this today. And she was like, you know, we had talked about some of my triggers as we were talking about her triggers. And I, you know, was sharing with her, well, this is problematic for me, whatever. And she was like, oh my gosh, you know, you're doing this today. Like, I'm so proud of you. 
And it was hard because at a certain point, my ex-husband had sex trafficked me as a webcam girl. And, you know, people would say to me later, well, he didn't hold a gun to your head. No, you're right. He didn't. But one day when he was angry at me, he fired a gun over my children's heads. And I really believe that was my warning, that if I didn't do what he wanted, he would hurt them or kill them. And so, you know, you don't have to hold a gun to a woman's head to force her to do things that she doesn't want to do. So for me, webcamming, any kind of face, you know, FaceTime has been really hard. It's been really hard because it brings back those memories of being forced to do something that I didn't want to do, that I didn't believe in, that wasn't a part of who I was, you know, because it was something he wanted me to do. And it kind of came about because he developed bipolar disorder. And when he became bipolar, he changed from being this really conservative Christian to being everything opposite of it. This is really common with bipolar disorder. We talk about Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. That was exactly my situation. So it was a really, you know, really quick kind of thing that happened where, you know, all of a sudden the stuff that he was forcing me to do, controlling me, was the direct opposite of what had been, you know, going on for most of our marriage. It was really weird, really bizarre. So as you can imagine, I had a lot of traumatic memories to get over. Um, you know, I, I had all of the PTSD symptoms. I would have flashbacks and nightmares. I remember being in court once fighting for the kids and I literally just wanted to crawl under the table. I was so afraid of him even just looking at me, being in the same room with him. Um, I was terrified he would bring one of his guns into the courtroom. I was, you know, there were so many things that were, I was afraid of. And they were all valid concerns. Every time my children went for a visit, I was afraid that he might shoot them. It was absolutely terrifying. So yeah, there definitely was a lot of trauma. I talked to many, many people therapeutically. Um, when the kids and I first got out, I had a domestic violence um, counselor through a local shelter who I talked to, the kids and I never stayed in a shelter because my parents helped us to get an apartment when we came back to New Hampshire. They gave us, you know, the deposit. I already had my job, so we didn't have to stay in a shelter. But um, I did work with a local domestic violence center for counseling and sort of other legal advice, things like that. And, you know, gosh, before I left my ex-husband, we probably saw a dozen psychologists because, you know, I was just convinced that maybe if we got the right person and they talked to him, maybe he would have a change of heart. Maybe, you know, they could figure out what was wrong with him. That's where he got the bipolar diagnosis, by the way. And, you know, so lots and lots of psychology professionals involved. The kids and I, let's see, we had a family counselor that came into our home and sort of worked with all of us as a family. We each were involved in individual counseling. We did work with a local pastor, actually two local pastors who were close friends. One I had worked with and um, then one, you know, was um, the pastor of the church that we attended after we left. And yeah, there were just lots and lots of psychology professionals helping with that trauma, you know, for the kids as well. 
I think one of the hardest things for me as a mom was the car was our always our safety spot and it still is. I mean, I'm in the car, you know, Skyping, Zooming with you right now, but it's always been our safety spot because it's the place where you could lock the doors and you can turn up the music and nobody else can hear what you're saying to each other in the car. And for us in a situation with their dad, that was something that we needed to have a place where, you know, he couldn't hear us. And I mean, I'm sure that there are abusers out there that bug cars, but ours never did. He never thought of doing that. So um, when I would pick the kids up from school or when I would drop them off in the morning or when I would pick them up from a visit with their dad, I used to call it like word vomit because as soon as they got in the car, they would just cry and just spill everything. And it was so hard for me because I was dealing with my own trauma and my heart would just break. And then my brain would get busy with how am I going to make this stop happening for them? You know, whatever the problem was, how am I going to help? And so time after time, we would call CPS and talk to them. We would call our counselors and talk to them. We would call the police and ask for advice. And I'm very pleased to say that we worked with a lot of excellent people who had good ideas on how to stop some of the things that were happening that were definitely abusive, you know? Um, we did not, we had a lawyer who helped us to a certain point and then she kind of dumped us and nobody else wanted to take the case. Nobody else wanted to help. And that's common. A lot of lawyers don't like domestic violence cases because they're hard to win. It's hard to have proof of the abuse. And sometimes the women are a little crazy. I mean, anybody would be a little crazy after getting out of some of these situations. People need time to heal. People need time to sort of get their head screwed back on straight. But they're very difficult clients. You know, I'm not going to lie. Yeah. When, when you say that, like, just, it makes, it just makes me think like coping with trauma instead of completely getting rid of it and acting like it was never there, I think is a lot more real, realistic to learn better mm -hmm. ways to cope with. And, you know, it, cause it's, it's still, it's part of your story, but I love that you're helping so many women now. And like, I'm talking Thank to a you. doctor, like you're about to be a doctor, like, you know, and you've, you've come so far and it's just, yeah, like that's, that's definitely, I, I cannot imagine. I try to use that to really encourage women too. And I say, you know, Hey, look, you know, maybe they're leaving with one child, you know, or like the women that don't have children, you know, I'm always like, Hey, this is doable. I did this with five kids. Like if I could do this to five kids, you can do this. You will do this, you know? Um, and I think that that's, you know, I really try to encourage them that like, you know, for me, this was like this huge mountain. And I just, I, you know, and when, when I was in it, I didn't think of it that way. Yeah. I think the best advice is just, you take it day by day and you take it incident by incident. You can make yourself an absolute basket case worrying about what might happen. Mm -hmm. And you just have to, I, I spent a lot of time praying for my kids, just praying for their safety, just praying that they would come home safe and sound, you know, praying for their mental health, praying for, 
you know, just that God would keep them healthy and safe. What was like what I would pray for most often. And I would ask my friends to pray for them. Every time they had a visit with their abusive father, I would say, you know, Lord, you know, just please, you know, help them. And then I'd ask my friends, you know, to pray. And I'd say, hey, the kids are with their dad tonight, or, you know, they're with their dad for a couple of days. Can you please pray for them? So I, with that, because I am noting the time, I, I don't want to forget to say these things. I think it's very important. Oh, definitely. Coming full circle. My abusive ex has also made a lot of progress. And this is amazing because it's actually just really a miracle, I think. He was really dangerous. He was right up there. You know, when we do dangerous, we do assessments for how dangerous the situation is for a victim. We use standardized assessments. One is called the spousal assault risk assessment. Another one is called the be safer. And that one is used by cops. Another one is called the LAP. That one is also most often used by cops. That one actually comes to us from, I think, Virginia, but it's the one that is preferred in New Hampshire at this time. So we do risk assessments. And in this risk assessment, we go through and we decide just how dangerous the perpetrator is. My ex-husband was right at the top. I mean, he was just one of the most dangerous perpetrators you could imagine. I sincerely believe we would have ended up where, you know, your aunt, you know, Mm -hmm. did up. I, I really do. So I never thought he would get better. He attended Lundy Bancroft's program for 21 out of 40 weeks. And then by that time, he'd met a new girl and she told him that he didn't need to attend it because, you know, I was the one with the problem. There was nothing wrong with him. So he dropped out. And my heart just sank. I remember his group leader calling me to let me know that he dropped out of the program. And he said, you know, without being in a program like this, he has 0% chance of ever getting better. So you need to be really careful because, you know, he's going to be out there watching and he may come after you and the kids. And so, you know, we did put a lot of protection in place. I mean, the police in our town were really watching. You know, I alerted them right away. I showed them the paperwork that that batter's intervention program sent me for that purpose. And, you know, I really tried to be very careful about situations that the kids and I were in so that we would stay safe. And, we had neighbors that watched really closely. There were a lot of really great people in our village, you know, that just surrounded us and protected us. But, but again, I was very open about everything that was happening. You know, mm-hmm. I talked about it a lot. So people at the kids' schools, people who live next to us, our police department, they all knew, you know. And so I can't really say like, I kept us safe. You know, God provided people in our lives who were angels, who watched over us and kept us safe many many incidents where you know harm could have come to us but it didn't because we had people watching over us but the really cool thing that happened was about six years ago he had a little girl my ex-husband with his new partner who is now his wife and I'm not sure why it changed him but I think it woke him up. I also think at that time he started to use medical marijuana. And I mean, again, it's not like I've seen his prescription or anything. It's just my, my oldest son, you know, shared some things with me. And we really began to see the changes. 
slowly over time. I think it became really important for him. I think maybe he saw his new daughter, his new baby, as a fresh shot at being a good dad. And so he started to work really, really hard at being a good dad. And that was the beginning. And then with that, of course, came, you know, the help. And I, and I really believe in his case, because he was diagnosed bipolar, he needed some kind of medication to help with that. Most people who have mental illness, you know, at some point need some kind of medication to sort of get things under control. So whatever it was, whether it was both of those things or all of those things, or maybe it was my prayers. I prayed for him for seven years. I couldn't pray for him in the beginning. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. I was so angry. Oh, I was so angry that he'd let do us. I couldn't pray for him. But slowly over time, as I learned about his childhood, as I learned about things that had happened in his past before he met me, you know, my mom and I talking on the phone about these things, we realized that there needed to be compassion there too, mm-hmm. that he was still a human being, that he had been a victim himself, that he had suffered himself. He didn't have a good model of what a good marriage looked like. He didn't have those things that children need to grow up and and become really great people. And, you know, I started to pray for him again. So maybe it was all of those things. Maybe it was the prayers of myself, my mother, maybe other people who were praying too. Maybe it was, you know, the use of finally finding something to use for medication that helped. Maybe it was the birth of his new daughter but he changed. And I'm really proud to say now that my kids have a relationship with him and they love him very much. We're not afraid anymore. And it's just incredibly like peaceful. And I think to me, that's a huge encouragement because there was a time when I didn't know what was going to happen to him. I didn't know if he would maybe try to harm himself or end up in jail. I didn't know what was going to happen, but now he's okay. And I feel really good about that. And that's part of why the books are staying off the shelf at this point, because I don't feel like I need to keep punishing him for his past. Yeah. You know, there's redemption, right? For anybody. Absolutely. That is so beautiful. I'm like on the edge of tears because I'm just like trying really hard to like work on my like self-discipline because like, this is really, no, this is really mm-hmm. touching. I, I, you know, you would have never known that you had dealt with something like this. And I just, I thank you so much for coming on here and, you know, being a person that is actually like helping people. So when are you going to be done with your PhD? Well, hopefully in about a year, maybe less, but it's a little bit hard to know because the study I'm doing is kind of pioneering. I'm doing interviews with police officers in a way that has not been done before. We really wanted to do it in real time, which has not been done. Um, Survey studies have been done. Interviews with like focus groups have been done, but my dissertation, my study that I've proposed is going to be interviewing police officers immediately after a domestic violence call. We're going to sort of be using like a cognitive interview style, sort of like you see on crime shows when they're interviewing witnesses, because we really want to get the viewpoint of the police officer. 
Um, a police officer is a gatekeeper. They have the ability to help that woman and children when they first get on the train. They have that shot at helping them get off that train before things escalate and become really dangerous. Because they have that unique ability to intervene so early, we want to find out why that's not happening. And the best way to find out why it's not happening is to talk directly to police officers. Find out what's going on in that call. Find out what it looks like for them. But because this is a new idea, and because police officers may not want to talk to us, who can blame them in today's climate, you know? I mean, because they're under attack, you know? So They've been under attack since, like, what, 2013? So, like, Mm -hmm. media-wise, 2012, 2013? So... Because of that, it may take a while to complete the study. And I cannot graduate until I've completed this study. So at the moment, we're attempting to get the proposal to go through all the approvals that it needs to. Once it's all approved, then I can begin the study. I do have a cooperating police um, chief who graduated from Walden University. And he has agreed to let me talk to his officers, which is wonderful. Again, really hard to get people to want to work with me. I don't blame them. They're afraid. Lots of anonymity. That's very important in this study. You know, nobody will ever know if they participated. Yeah. But the information that they can give us about what it looks like as a police officer to try to help a victim is just going to be really valuable in how to turn this around for police officers and for victims. You know, it's a very risky call. It accounts for 14.1% of all officer deaths going to domestic violence call. Just showing up as a police officer puts you at risk. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's, I really believe that it's kind of the place that we need to do the research. We have a lot of research on victims. We have a lot of research on perpetrators but we don't have a lot of research on the professionals that are working with these people. Yeah. And yeah, I just think it's an important, you know, missing piece. I absolutely so, agree. Yeah. So, I mean, as soon as the study's done, then I get to graduate, but you know, I, I'm hoping, hoping it'll be about a year. You know, honestly, it's been a long road. It's been seven years so far. Um, I had to do my coursework first and then start, it's been four years I've been working on this proposal. And it seems like a really long time, but it's a lot of research. It's about 158 pages right now. And it's just, you know, probably 50 pages of it is journal articles in other studies that have been done with all the other parties involved. And then there's like this little niche where my research will fit, you know, when I'm done. So there's been like a handful of studies done in the last 10 years um, with police officers on this topic. So very excited. It'll be one last question that I have for you since you shared that part with me. Five years from now, what do you want to be doing? I think I want to be doing just what I'm doing. Not much will change. People ask me all the time, oh, when you become like, you know, Dr. Roberts, are you going to do this or do that? And I say, you know, I'm probably just going to stay here in my small town and continue to help victims continue to work with police officers, continue to talk to judges and attorneys and social workers 
and try to help them understand what's going on with victims. So probably not a lot will change. I may write some more books because I definitely have a lot more experience now to write about. Um, and I do enjoy writing. I can't say I really enjoy scholarly writing. It's pretty rough stuff. Yeah. It's, yeah. The <laughs> words are pretty hard. <laughs> yep. It's, it's a little really dry. Yeah. It's very dry. <laughs> yep. And I'm very, you know, um, my advisor says you're a stream of consciousness writer. And that's true. If you write my books, I put it down exactly the way I would tell the story to you right here. And can't do that in scholarly writing. So I'm actually really eager to be able to get back to the kind of writing that flows for me and is comfortable for me. So I think there will probably be more books. There will definitely be a lot more volunteering with victims and you know, maybe a little bit of teaching as well. You know, I would love to be able to uh, maybe teach some of what I've learned at a police academy or maybe at a law school. Um, it's just so applicable for those fields. Psychologists too, um, we don't have in psychology, I have yet to find a, a college or university that offers an entire course on domestic violence, which is just astounding to me. I can't even believe that. Right. With our numbers with, being so high. With almost one out of three women mm -hmm. who are victimized and one out of seven men in the U.S., um, so you can see that differential, but, and then we don't have a good number for how many children become mm -hmm. victims of this. So with such a, it's such a prevalent dynamic. I just feel like it deserves its own textbook, its own class. I feel like it deserves a lot more attention than it's getting. You're you right know. where you need to be. You are right where God put you. And I absolutely, absolutely believe you went through what you did to change the world because you are going to, you're changing so many lives and you're going to change so many more. So I'm happy that it's not going to change much because you're doing exactly <laughs> what you need to do. Thank you so much. No, that's, that's, that's great. I just, I, I felt like the, the emotions through this because I'm just like, I'm talking to someone that is changing the demographics on domestic violence. Yeah, and it has to change. Yeah, it has to. We, you know, we're in lots of other areas of, of law enforcement, of work with forensic psychology, we've been able to bring numbers down. But in this area, numbers just keep going up. COVID has definitely made it worse. But just in general, when you look at the numbers every year, you know, it keeps going up. And you can say, well, maybe that's because people are reporting more. You know, either way, we want to see these numbers go down. You know, we don't want these this many women and children and families affected by this. So whatever we have been doing is not working. Mm -hmm. We need to change what we're doing to really help victims, you know? And, and it's a little crazy. You know, I do the case I'm working on now giving the lawyer some different ideas. And he's thinking like, that's crazy. You can't do that. I'm saying, well, you have to try because this is what the judge needs to hear. This is what the judge needs to see. So yeah, you know, lots of changes need to be made. And I know a lot of people work through the legal system trying to get more laws, legislation in place. The legislation we have now can work very well if you know how to work it. But I think people don't know how to use the laws in place 
to help victims. So for sure, there's a lot of education to be done, you know, and a lot of sort of trying different things that, you know, thinking outside the box as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I'm going to wrap it up here soon. If you are a victim of domestic violence, or you know, someone that is a victim of domestic violence, please reach out to Marsha. Please. Like if you don't have anybody that is helpful or, you know, a support system, if you don't have that good support system, you don't know where to start, start with her. Also, if you just want more information, definitely check out the book in the show notes. And honestly, I'd love to have you back on here in another year once you become a doctor or, you know, whenever you feel comfortable, you know, because this, this is something that definitely needs to be talked about. And I want to have a consistent conversation on this. I want to continue to follow your story because you're an amazing woman. And I just want to thank you so much for spending time with me today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Absolutely.